0: Well, thanks, Jenny, for that beautiful song. Keep praying for Jeff and Jenny as they're raising support to serve a mission agency that has missionaries all over the world. And uh, speaking about all over the world, I wanted to make sure we said hello to Daryl Burling. Daryl, I'm looking for you out there. There you are. Can you stand up for us, please? Daryl used to be an intern here at Placeritas, pursuing a Ph.D. <laughs> First, I just wanna welcome you back. He's pursuing a, a PhD at Southern Seminary in biblical counseling and just kind of flies through here and surprises us like he did this weekend. Just walked into my office just as I was walking out on Friday afternoon. But welcome brother, great to see you. Please tell your wife and the children we all said hello from Placerita and uh, may the Lord be with you as you continue your studies in biblical counseling. Also wanted to give you guys an update on Tim Burrell. Many of you know they had a surgery back on May the 15th. They were able to take out 90% of the tumor and, uh, and that's a good thing, and, uh, but he did suffer from a symptom of double vision. So after the surgery, that was one of the risks, and then uh, this week, he also developed meningitis, which is an inflammation and a bacterial infection of the brain. They caught it early, He went back in, and they're treating it well, and they figured out what happened was he had a leak in his brain from the original surgery, so they were able to patch that up yesterday, and uh, he's in good spirits, <laughs> so I was with them good part of the day yesterday. He's doing well. He and Donna um, have just really ministered to me as I see their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and their faith in the Lord, and so, uh, you know, to summarize all that, he's actually doing well, they feel like they're ahead of everything at this point, the meningitis, they fixed the the leak yesterday, he should go home sometime this week, he still has uh, six weeks of radiation uh, ahead of him, and yet, at the same time, every day, they're walking close with the Lord Jesus, they covet your prayers, they really appreciated the birthday and get well soon cards, remember those two cards we had back in the back a couple of weeks ago, they had it propped up right there in their hospital room, and uh, just took a lot of strength and encouragement for that from that. So keep praying for him and Donna as they continue to recover. And then I just want to say thanks for letting me be out last Sunday. I was up in Hickman, California. That's a little bit uh uh, it's just north of here, and uh, it's uh, some farm country. And uh, there's a, a pastor up there by the name of Andy Woodfield who hosted a men's conference that I was able to be at and stay over and preach on Sunday, along with Michael C. Houston, our missionary that we're sending to Fiji. And a couple of my boys went with me; had a great time. But I'm so thankful for Joe Keller who filled the pulpit here. I was able to hear his sermon this week; really blessed by 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 17, and that that passage. And I've been eating uh, hot breakfast all week, if you heard his sermon last week. So anyway, if you have your Bible with you today, open up to John, John chapter nine, and we're gonna continue our study in the man born blind. And so we've already spent a couple of weeks here in the first three verses, and I'm gonna try to move a little bit more through the narrative today. And so uh, the title of the sermon is Things We Can Learn From a Blind Man. Things We Can Learn From a Blind Man. John chapter nine, I'll read verses one through 12. And we'll see how far we get today. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sent this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray for the clarity of scripture to penetrate and pierce our soul today. And as we read this famous narrative of Jesus healing a man born blind, I pray that you would open our eyes today, God, to see Christ in all of his glory We, too, would be having our eyes opened. We would see the substance of this text. You would change us and invigorate us and revive us and cause us to leave this place truly changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's an oft-repeated idea that blind people can compensate for their lack of sight with enhanced hearing or other abilities. The musical talents of Stevie Wonder, who sang the song Revela- or Superstition, and Ray Charles, who sang Georgia, On My Mind, are popular examples of this tendency. Both of these artists were men who were blinded at an early age, and they prove how blindness can promote advantages in other areas. It has been commonly thought that improvement in these other areas of a blind person is a result of a learned behavior. In the absence of vision, blind people pay extra attention to auditory cues and learn how to use them more efficiently. But now there is mounting evidence that people missing one sense don't just learn how to use their other senses better. We now know that the brain adapts to the loss by giving itself a makeover. That's right, if one sense is lost, the areas of the brain normally devoted to handling that sensory information do not go unused, they get rewired and put to work processing other senses. New research has been done which involved people who were either born blind or became blind before the age of three. The brain scans done in these individuals showed that they had heightened development in the brain in areas of hearing, smell, and touch compared to the people in the study who were not blind. One research scientist said, quote, even in the case of being profoundly blind, the brain rewires itself in a manner to use the information at its disposal so that it can interact with the environment in a more effective manner. As a child growing up, we had a piano tuner who would come to our house every couple of years. And I remember that that man was blind. I remember watching him as a blind man, as my mom would allow him to enter the house and he would kind of fill his way into the living room where the piano was and open it up and just start to, you know, kick those things with whatever he had and just kind of tweak it, turn his ear towards that sound. And my mama used to say that this man was the best and the fastest piano tuner she had ever seen. Kind of amazing, isn't it? It's, it's pretty cool to think that somebody like that could develop a skill like that. Why was he so good? I mean, he couldn't see the dial on the electric tuning device, but he could use a tuning fork. And because his brain and because of his discipline, it allowed him to hear things that I couldn't hear. And he was therefore able to tune the piano perfectly, even though he couldn't see. And in John chapter 9, we are learning about how Jesus healed a man born blind. And sometimes we think that we can only learn from people who can see. We think we can only learn from those that we observe who seem to be doing well, those who have advanced degrees or those who've been labeled as successful. But in the Bible, sometimes our best lessons are from the poor and from the needy and from those who have a physical need. We learn, in God's word that it's from the leper that was healed, we learn how to come back to Jesus and give thanks. From the woman who bled for 12 years, we learn about the touch of faith. From the Syrophoenician woman, we learn that even dogs eat crumbs. From the master's table, from blind Bartimaeus, we see that we need to learn to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And with that in mind, I want to carefully look at this story this morning of a man born blind because there are things that you and I can learn from a blind man. Let me share with you four of them this morning as we get started. Number one is simply this, trials in this world put God's glory on display. Now, we've spent some time already in verses 1 through 3, but let me just remind you, it was as Jesus passed by that he saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And in these verses, we read about this man who was born blind from birth. And it is assumed that he had no way to take care of himself. There were no food stamps. There was no welfare. This man was doomed. And so he would sit at the temple and beg. And those who were there that day asked a theological question about who would send. Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And remember the answer Jesus gave. It was neither. But it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we had a couple of sermons looking at these three verses where we were able to clearly see that trials are inevitable because we live in a fallen world. That we are not to be surprised when fiery trials come upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. We need to learn to expect trials. And with those, we need to learn to embrace them as something that God is using to bring about and to accomplish his will. In fact, your first blank says this, trials are for God's glory and for our what? For our good, right? They're for God's glory and for our good. And this is the very purpose for which God brings trials into your life. Trials come to place God's glory on display as you learn to trust him and to walk with him through the pain. We looked at Romans five, three through five that says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And we've got to be reminded, church, that you will go through trials and it will be difficult. But God has a purpose, that his name would be glorified in your life and that your walk and your character would be strengthened as you learn to develop endurance, character and hope. We looked at James chapter one, verses two through four, where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I don't know about you, but I've been through a few trials this week. Sometimes they're just physical. Sometimes I'm just tired. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes you're just dealing with other people's problems and they kind of weigh in on your heart. But you know what? We can carry all these burdens to the Lord and we carry every one of them to him in prayer. And we look to scripture and we see how God uses these things to sharpen us and to equip us and to mature us and to enable us to see God's glory. We also see your second blank that trials are to strengthen us and to perfect us. They're to perfect us. You heard the last part of James 1, 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know we're all lacking. We are all far from perfect. We all need to be growing and changing to be more like Jesus. And God's sometimes his best tool to bring about change in your life is ordaining a trial that would help you see his glory that would help you be a better Christian and that would be perfecting you. In fact, Paul says it, the apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, seven through 10, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times. He says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. It is. My grace is sufficient for, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul realizes that, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content." with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you embracing your trials in that way this week? Whether you have a physical infirmity, whether you have a besetting sin, whether you're in a difficult marriage, Whether you have a rebellious teenager, are you understanding that God is orchestrating and using all these things to strengthen your character, to strengthen your dependence on the source of real power, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so whatever you're going through today, whether it is big or small, and whatever trial you're facing, whether it's physical or spiritual, and whatever trial you're in, whether relational or just have a turmoil within you, you need and God supplies grace to deal with that trial. And his grace is sufficient. Oh, let me rest assured, there's plenty of it for all of you in this room. There's plenty of it for every person in Santa Carita. There's plenty of grace in the whole world to help each and every one of us as we go through our trials. For when we look to the Lord, we realize that when I am weak, he is strong kind of how we started off. We spent two weeks just talking about that. I couldn't move to point two without saying it one more time, because we need it every day. Every week, we need to remind ourselves of those truths, and so a second thing we can learn from this blind man, number two, is about time management. Time management in your ministry is a must, and we learn it not so much, maybe, from the blind man as how Jesus talks about this event as he interacts with him look at verses four and five they're asking Jesus again who was born blind he said neither one but that God's glory may be displayed that the works of God might be displayed in him and then he says this we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world I am the light of the world remember Jesus is on a mission His mission is to do his father's will. And his mission was to preach the word and to love and serve people and to win the lost. And in order to do this, he had to stay on a tight schedule. And yet he had enough time to do whatever needed to be done and he was never too busy for anybody. Jesus used every moment to do the work that the father had sent him to do. And if you evaluate the life of Jesus in the gospels, there was time for teaching, There was time for prayer. There was time for healing. There was time for children. There was time for eating and drinking and sleeping. There was time to go to a wedding. There was time to roast fish over an open fire. There was time to answer questions. There was time to cleanse the temple. There was time to confront the Pharisees and the scribes. There was time to go to the tomb of Lazarus. There was time to get away. There was time to disciple. There was time for everything, Jesus was a master planner, and so when he says here in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, he's kind of telling us it's important for us to have some type of time management. He, he planned how to spend his life in a way that made a permanent and lasting difference in the world, and so your next blank there just says time management is about proper stewardship of your time. That's what it's all about. Jesus, when he says we must That word there has the idea of that it is necessary. It is necessary for us to do what God's called us to do. We must be doing the works of him who sent me. And I'm just saying in order to do that, you've got to be able to manage your time. The idea here, again, is that it's a must. It's absolutely necessary for me and for you to be doing the works of him who sent me. And as a Christian, you must realize that your life is not your own. That means that God owns you. He created you. He bought you with a price. He converted you. And he created you. And he's channeling you to do his work. And so I would say that these words of Jesus in verse 4 create urgency. That we realize that we must do the work that he's called us to do. While we still have the day. Because the night is coming. So there's this urgency where we've got to wake up from our spiritual stupor, and we've got to get out of bed, and we've got to seize the day, and we've got to take every opportunity that God gives us in your marriage, with your children. Every moment of every day is precious, and we need to be busy in the power of the Spirit, doing what God has called us to do. I love how Paul writes this in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. We must do the works He's called us to do. But we are same root word there. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, sometimes good works get a bad rap because we talk about, well, you can't be saved by your works. So therefore, don't do any. Well, it's not what the Bible says, right? You're created to do good works. You got to be saved in order to do them to the glory of God. Otherwise, they're not truly done in a a heart of worship and attitude. It's really out of self-promotion, right? But if you're born again, you and I are called to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and to be doing the works that God called us to do. And in this verse, verse 4, Jesus tells us to do the work while it is day. Notice he says, we must not just talking about him. This is not just an obligation that he places upon himself as the Son of God. He's there with his disciples and says, this is what we are called to do. We do this together as a family, as a church. We are, must be doing these works that, that he's called us to do while it's day because the night is coming. It is coming when no one can work. This again conveys that sense of urgency, this likely might even refer to that brief time that Jesus had left on earth, probably about six months from the time he said this until the time he was crucified. And as long as he was still present with his disciples, he wanted them to be productive in their work. I think that Jesus is saying that as long as he is here, everything revolves around him. Everything revolves around his ministry and his mission, and we got to pay attention to him. And as long as he is in the world, he is the light of the world. But then he says the night is coming when no one can work. Some commentators believe this refers to the 50 days when Christians gathered around and waited for Pentecost to come. During this time, the disciples kept to themselves and awaited the promised Holy Spirit who would fill them with power. And since every disciple is to work in the power of the Spirit, we now must continue that work. And so I think here in the text, he might be referring to that. He might be referring to the fact that one day he'll be gone. I mean, even though he's gone, he's still the light of the world. So you have to read the Bible understanding various nuances and understanding that in one sense, he's gone, so that's sad. But in another sense, he's in us, so that's good. That's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five fourteen, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is gone, but he's here in us. He dwells in us, and we're to be busy doing the work that he's called us to do. He's still the light of the world, in and through you, even though physically he's now gone, and we anticipate his second coming. And so in order to accomplish the mission that God has called us to, we need to be good stewards of the time that God has given to us. We must be doing the work. Don't waste your life. Don't waste the opportunities that God has given to you. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your triumphs. Don't waste a single day giving glory to God and living a spirit-filled life of obedient, obedient uh, following Him, obedience and worship. You want an opportunity? You want an opportunity to serve Him? I just received an email this morning from a pastor from Virginia. Who says I'm coming out to the Masters University to do, do the M A B C and I need a place to stay for two weeks. Pastor, can you find me a place? Pastor Steve and I get these emails all the time. Right? So if you want an opportunity to say, I'm gonna seize the day, all right, Tyson, I'm with you, man. Then come talk to me after this service. If you want to offer up your home for one or two weeks, is an opportunity that God could give to you even this summer, it's the last two weeks of July. Come talk to me or Pastor Steve, and we will hook you up, all right? So turn with me as well, just we're talking about management of our time. I think maybe the best text on this is Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. I preached this a few years back, but you know the text well here. It says, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully. How, like, evaluate how you walk. Don't do it as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Same idea there. There's urgency while the light is here. Let's work. The night is coming. This world will one day be over. Let's do the work God's called us to do using wisdom and making the best use of your time. We call that redeeming the time. Taking that time that God's given and making it precious and using every moment of it in a valuable way for the glory of God. Be careful how you live, not as unwise. The days are evil. Let's make them righteous in God's sight by using the time that he gives us for his glory. Imagine that there is a bank that credits your account each morning with $86,400. Every day, some bank, Puts in your account, with your name on it, $86,400. But there's a catch. All the money must be drawn out and spent every day. Now, I know ladies would have no trouble with that. <laughs> Just kidding. Guys would have no trouble either, right? Can you imagine? I got to spend eighty-six grand every day, and it carries over no balance from day to day. And every evening, the bank deletes whatever part of the money that you failed to use during the day. What would you do? Well, you would take out and spend every cent of it. In fact, some of you might even go into debt spending above and beyond that amount. (laughs) All right, so you gotta be careful, right? But the idea is you could draw out every cent. uh, I mean, your money is going to vanish at the end of every day, and you wanna spend it all each day. And so you don't wanna waste a cent. The good news I have for you is that each one of us has such a bank just like this, but in real life, and it's called time. Every morning, it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night, it writes off as a loss whatever portion of this that you failed to invest in your day to the glory of God. Time carries no balance. It allows no overdraft. Every day, it opens a new account for you. Each night, it burns the remains of the day. And if you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. You must live in the present on today's deposit. Listen to me, church. The clock is running. Make the most of Today, while you have today, that's what Christ is saying. You got, you got 86,000 seconds today. How are you going to use them for the glory of Christ? And so, time management matters to Jesus. The second blank there, subpoint, says time management learns from the past but leans toward the future. In this story about the man born blind, the disciples were focused on the past. They wanted to discuss theological dilemmas about what occurred in the past to make this man this way. Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus wanted to focus their attention on the future. Jesus says it's not about this man's past, not about him or his parents. It's about the works of God that might be displayed in him in the present and in the future. Now, listen to me. We definitely want to learn from the past, but we would be wise to focus also on the future, right? We, we, we want to evaluate the past. We can't change the past, so we need to, 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 to be aware of that. But we live in the present with an eye towards the future. And when Jesus says here in verse 3, he says, look, it's all about the works of God being this way. Let's don't worry about how we got here. We're here. Let's go forward doing what God's called us to do with this situation. And we need to expect God to do great things things in the future. We need to expect God's glory to be put on display in our present and in our future. And we need to make sure that we are living and serving the God of the present and the future. And so you must learn to invest the time God has given you wisely so that your life is not spent pondering what could have or should have been, right? But rather spend your time planning what it can be if you're abiding in Christ and he's abiding in you. And every moment of every day, you're just walking hand in hand with Jesus. How can today be used for the glory of God? How can tomorrow be used for the glory of God? How can I serve you, Lord? I'm here. I'm your man, Lord. Put me in wh- whatever you need. If it's serving somebody, there's lots of opportunities around here. And sometimes I get a little weary. Sometimes I'm thinking, Lord, are you sure? I've got to meet with another person, go to another event, do this. I mean, that's just life, right? And at the same time, I'm like, Lord, thank you for the privilege Thank you for the opportunity to be with people on their best days, on their worst days, and to point them to Christ and just spend time with them. Last night, Lisa and I went to a wedding, performed a wedding right here, had a reception in Agua Dulce. <laughs> it's one of the funnest receptions I've ever been to, a Middle Eastern reception. I'm telling you, these people can dance. <laughs> I thought something was in the hummus. So I'm like, oh my word. Do you know what? God's good. It's just taking every moment of every day, from early to late, said, "It's yours, Lord. My life is yours." It's what Moses taught us in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's wisdom. To manage your time well. To number our days means that we realize how few there are in the light of eternity. Each day matters. Each day makes a difference. Each day brings new opportunities. Make every day count for the glory of God. We learn from the past, but we lean towards the future. You remember that virtuous woman in Proverbs 31? I like how the NASB translates verse 25 as, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future, right? Why is that? Because her character and her hard work and her dependence on the Lord. She knew God was in control and she looked to the future and she spent her time serving and providing for her family. So she just smiled knowing that God would take care of her. She was using the most of her time. She's being productive with her time and doing what God had called her to do. And she was a homemaker. Good part of the time. She had a business as well, but it seemed like she ran it out of her home. But she made the most of every day, right? She was both a godly woman and an active woman investing her life in ministry in practical ways that made a difference for the glory of God. And so let me ask you this morning, church, are are you learning from your past and are you leaning towards your future? Are you spending time in the word of God? Are you spending those precious moments in prayer? Are you leading your family to Jesus? Are you serving the Lord and serving others? Are you applying yourself at work and at school? Are you being a witness for Christ? Are you really making the most of every moment because Jesus says we must, we must do the works he's called us to do while we still have today. And so we are learning in this interaction between Jesus and the man born blind that in this world you will go through trials, but God has put them there to put his glory on display. And we're learning that time management in the ministry of Jesus and in your life is a must. And the third thing that we're going to learn from observing this blind man today, number three, techniques may differ, but the result is the same. Look at verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Your next blank says the different ways Jesus healed people. Remember all about that? The different ways Jesus healed people. In this passage, Jesus made mud with his saliva, and he told the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Different commentators make a big deal about the fact that Jesus made mud with his own saliva. Some say that Jesus's saliva had a special healing property. Some say that Jesus was making mud to create new eyeballs for the man out of dirt. Some say that Jesus' making of clay broke the rabbinic regulations against kneading clay on the Sabbath. The truth is, we're not sure exactly what Jesus was doing or why he used this technique on this time. In fact, if we were to observe the methods that Jesus used for healing, they're almost different in every occurrence. Matthew 9, 27 through 31, Jesus healed two blind men by merely touching their eyes. Mark 8:22 through 26 Jesus healed another blind man by putting spittle on his eyes. Matthew 8:14 and 15 Jesus just simply touched Peter's mother-in-law's hand and the fever left her. Mark seven thirty-two through 37, Jesus put his fingers into the ears of a deaf man and touched the tongue of this same man who couldn't speak and healed him on the spot. Luke eight forty-three through 44, the fringe of Jesus's garment was touched by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she was healed. And the list goes on and on. Most of the time, Jesus just spoke healing into existence and the person was healed. It was like to what what he did when he went to Lazarus, who was in the tomb for four days. He simply said, Lazarus, come forth, right? And what's the point of all this? The the point is there is no technique, there is no method that accomplishes healing. Healing is not about a formula, healing is not about a method, and healing is not about essential oils. Come on, somebody say amen. (laughs) Jesus just changes it up a little as if for no other reason than to show that there is no particular pattern being established. Jesus does what he does naturally. Jesus does what he does supernaturally. Jesus is the great physician who cares for people's bodies, and he also cares for their souls. I'm just saying, don't get too wrapped up in the fact he made mud. Put it on this man's eyes. It's just what he did in that instance, for his glory. Our next subpoint says this, the same outcome of the miracles Jesus performed. Each person who got healed by Jesus was healed completely. We did it differently, but every person had the same result. It was instantaneous, and as far as we can tell, the healing that Jesus did had a lifetime warranty. In other words, the people healed from their blindness didn't go blind again. And the people who got healed from leprosy didn't get leprosy again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? These things were also done in broad daylight for everyone to see. There was no hiding going on. There's no secret meeting. There's no, there's no flash in the pan. Right? There, there's this, it's just right there in front of everybody, completely undeniable. I remember when I worked as a physician's assistant in Savannah, Georgia, the heart surgeon that I worked for had a mate he told me about how his maid had a back problem. Sometimes she couldn't come to work. Her back was, was uh, out of sorts. And so one time she went to this healing service at a charismatic church. And she came back healed. And he told me he couldn't believe it. This woman's working like nobody's business. she have been healed at this meeting. And I thought, huh, it's interesting. So I let a couple of months pass by. And I said, hey, doctor, how's your maid doing? He's like, oh, she had to take a couple of weeks off. She's getting back surgery i like, I thought you got healed. He's like, well, apparently not, right? And that's what we're, we're talking about, right? Listen to me, these Benny Hinn type healers are all a farce. They claim great healings, but people who are really sick, like Johnny Erickson Tata and the blind people and the paralyzed people of the world, they go into these meetings and they come out of these meetings unchanged. I'm not saying God can't heal. I'm saying that it's not common at some of these healing meetings for people who have a true physical illness like blindness or paralysis to get up and walk out of there instantaneously and brand new. That's a work of Jesus. He could do it at any time, at any place. We pray for healing at our church. Don't be confused. We pray for it and we trust God for it but I'm just saying it's not like this common thing that you go to a certain service of a healing ministry and they lay hands on you and they anoint you with oil and they do this, that, and the other and somehow you get up and walk out. I mean, if God wanted to, he could. I'm just saying it's just, it's not happened. There's a stark difference between that and how Jesus healed people. Jesus heals how he wants, when he wants, and the point in all of this is the fact that it's really greater than the healing. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. That's the whole point. Divine healing shows us that Jesus is divine. It's more important for us to see Jesus as God in the flesh, who came to save His people from their sins, than it is for us to experience some type of physical healing. And what happens is, is we invert those two. I just got to get healed. I got to get healed. That's like saying I got to get the thorn out of here. I got it's got to go. And God said, No, 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 no. My grace is sufficient. It is sufficient for you. Do you remember the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2? There was that paralytic who came with his friends and they couldn't get near to Jesus, so it was so crowded that day, so his friends went up on the roof and they began to remove part of the roof and make an opening so that they could lower down that paralytic right in front of Jesus. And Jesus saw him and he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes there said, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus, you're committing blasphemy. You can't forgive this man's sins. And you remember Jesus' response? He said, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, what he's saying is, from man's perspective, it's harder to say, take up your bed and walk. But from God's perspective, if he can do that, then certainly he can also do the other, which is forgiving this man of his sins, which is why Jesus goes on to say, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so the point of the miracle in Mark 2 is the same of the miracle of John 9, and the point of every miracle that Jesus ever did was to help somebody out in a situation who needed help, and at the same time, to point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the greater need that we have, to see Christ as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so if Jesus says to that paralytic, arise, pick up your bed, and go home, and if he says to this blind man, I got some mud that I put on your eye, eyelids, and I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. Remember, he's doing all of this to point us to the fact that when the healing takes place, that we're not attracted to the technique or to the method, that we're attracted to the man, Jesus Christ, that we look to him, and that we would bow before him and say, oh God, I'm a sinner. I've got another need. I have a spiritual need. I'm dead in my trespasses and my sins, and if you can cause me to see again, and cause me to walk again, Oh God, would you save my soul? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you be my sacrifice? It's just the point of the healing of the man born blind. And yet people get so wrapped up in the methodology of what's going on. And just one more simple thing to keep in mind. We'll have to close with this last little subpoint here. But notice the importance of obedience as a potential He did you see this in verse 7? And he said to him, Jesus to the man born blind, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. There's an important part that this man had to play of obeying Christ. And when Jesus tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, it is interesting to note that the pool of Siloam was recently discovered in 2004. It is located near the southeast corner of the city wall in Jerusalem, and if you remember in the Old Testament, there was a time when King Hezekiah feared a siege threatened by the Assyrians, and so King Hezekiah wanted to secure Jerusalem's water supply, so he had a tunnel dug from the Gion Spring in the Kidron Valley, just outside the city, through the bedrock underground, into the city, filling the Pool of Siloam. In fact, if you've ever been to Israel, It's one of my favorite things to do. I love going on the trip. I love going up to Galilee, walking through Jerusalem. And usually on a hot day, we're like begging the guide, can you take us to Hezekiah's tunnel? And there you put on some some type of foot gear and you get a flashlight and you can track through this tunnel that on this very day takes water still from the Gion Spring and brings it in to the pool of Siloam. How many of you have done it? Come on, you've been there? Look at that awesome. It's an incredible experience, right? It's a real pool, a real place, and the point here in parentheses that the author's trying to make is this pool, Siloam, it actually means sent. It means sent, which I think, after studying a little bit this week, that it just simply symbolizes the blessings of God to Israel as he has sent them his one and only son. It's almost like in a subtle way, Jesus is reminding us, that he also is sent from the Father, and he uses that terminology throughout the gospel of John, John 5, 37, and the Father who sent me, John six thirty-eight. I don't do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John six fifty-seven. he says that uh, as the living Father has sent me, so when he says go to the pool, it's called sent, there's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus was sent from God, and that he was now sending this blind man to the pool, which means sent. But I think there's a a subtle principle that Jesus gave the blind man, and that is simply this, that we also see there was a directive that Jesus gave to this blind man, and this blind man obeyed. God's blessings often flow through obedience. The reason that God has not blessed you may be that you have not obeyed him. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. Put that over here because there is a picture of salvation in this, but this ain't it. Now, this is a picture of obedience and a picture of sanctification. And as you walk with the Lord and obey the Lord, his blessings flow through obedience. I mean, you ever thought what would have happened to the man if he didn't do what Jesus said? What if he had scoffed at the idea of wiping off the mud in a pool that was a short distance away? Would he have missed out on his healing? Do you remember Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5? He was the commander of the army of Syria. He had contracted leprosy. He came to Elisha in Israel to be healed. And Elisha told Naaman, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And at first, Naaman was upset. And he didn't want to do it, but his, his attendant said, look, man, you might as well do what the guy said. So he did finally go into the River Jordan, and he, and, he, and he dipped himself seven times, and he was miraculously healed. God does the healing, but we are called to do the obeying. God does the saving, but we are sometimes sent to do what he's called us to do. God gives common grace, but we receive special grace when we follow and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. This man went out blind, but he came back seeing. This man went out with a handicap, but he came back as a handiwork of the Lord. This man went out in darkness, but he came back in the light of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, there's something tied to the fact that we need to be obeying The Lord and as you obey the Lord and as you walk with him in your sanctification his blessings flow they may be spiritual blessings they may not all be physical blessings doesn't mean you get what you want all the time but it does mean that you see Christ in all of his glory and the kind of display that happens in your life is intangible it's something that God shows up and blesses your marriage and blesses your parenting and gives you peace within and money can't buy that And that's what God provides. And so as we head out this morning, let's just skip to the take home part here. Number one, is there an urgency about the work that God has called you to do? Can you join with Christ today and say, we must, we must do the work that he's called us to do. Are you joining with that kind of urgency in your life? Number two, are you willing to obey whatever it is that God's word says? If he says, hey, there's some mud on your face. I want you to go wash in the pool. Are you willing just to say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, Lord. And God speaks to us, as you know today, through scripture, through his word. But sometimes he calls us to do humbling things. Are you ready to do whatever it is that he calls us to do? The last point, this is where we'll pick up next week. Has your life been radically transformed? Because what happened to this man is that he was so different when he came back seeing. They didn't even recognize him. They didn't even know that was him. They were like, is this the guy? And he's like, I am the man. When God touches your life and changes you, you are almost unrecognizable to the world around you. There's some things that we can learn from a blind man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive in your word. God, how we wish we just had time sometimes just to sit here all day and listen to Jesus as he has taught us so much through the narratives of the gospels and just to see these fascinating stories, little treasures and nuggets of truth all laid within the word of God. Thank you for allowing us to see that your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, how I pray that today that you would cut our hearts, show us our blindness, God. Show us our need for you. We're we're but blind beggars here today asking you to show us the light. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And so I would pray for those here today who don't know Jesus, that you would open their eyes so they could see. For those of us who know Christ, all by your grace, God, I pray that we would be obedient, humble obedience. Whatever you say, Lord, I pray that we would be urgent, This week in our following of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, teach us lessons today. Apply these truths in our hearts today. May we leave today with more power from your spirit to apply these truths and to live them out all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.